Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and I am here with Stephanie Carvin, uh, exercising appropriate social distance through Zoom software. And today, Stephanie, we are going to do an update with our friend, Phil Lagasse, because this oh. is a special edition of Her Majesty and Right of Pod. Well, you know, he's friend, friend of me. He's, he's our resident crown expert and pocket square enthusiast. So, you know, always happy to welcome Phil back to the podcast, I guess. So we were talking about having a podcast that would update what we talked about last week. So we talked about the um, legislation that's in place for the Emergencies Act. And as, you know, things have developed, we thought we would do a a quick update on that. But also um, to look at the other side of things, like how is Parliament supposed to function in a situation like this, where you have uh, a pandemic, where it's, you know, the whole point of the Westminster system is that you have people sitting very close to each other yelling things, um, the exact opposite of social distancing. So um, how does all this work? How is How well is Parliament responding to this pandemic? And what are the implications going forward? So Phil, I guess, thank you for joining us once again. Thank you. Thank you, frenemies. It is good <laughs> to be here. And uh, you, you'll all be happy that we're not talking prerogative. So this is this is the good thing. Is it though? Anyway, well, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> we could get to the fact that quarantine was originally a prerogative power, but I digress. Everything oh. was originally a prerogative power, Phil. <laughs> That's true. That is a very good point. You remember that? Oh God, I'm having flashbacks, traumatic flashbacks to our other Her Majesty and Reddit Pod podcast. Uh, but Craig, why don't we start off with, uh, you know, kind of our part one, which is just a quick update from last week regarding emergency powers. Um, it's, you know, it seems that so far the Emergency Act has not been uh, put in place, but we are still seeing uh, provinces now declare emergencies in cities as well. Yeah. So to be clear, the federal government has not triggered its Emergencies Act, right? So this was the 1988 legislation that we talked about with Leah West last week, which seems like seven years ago now. Uh, And uh, recall that their uh, public welfare emergency, which is the applicable emergency, is the closed list of powers. And uh, I think arguably the closed list of powers is much less flexible than the sorts of powers that provinces have introduced under either their emergencies laws or their public health laws. And so we talked a little bit about those last week as well. Just to bring our listeners up to date, every single province and territory has now issued a declaration under either its emergencies law or its public health law, which has the effect of introducing various measures uh, surrounding uh, social distancing of various sorts. The the measures that are introduced are not entirely consistent one jurisdiction to the other, but they all have the same thrust in terms of uh, essentially freezing our social life uh, in place in the hopes of staving off a broader uh, pandemic. Uh, I would say it's split pretty much down the middle in terms of whether provinces are using their public health law or their emergencies law, but the uh, long and short of it is that these are temporary uh, and fairly extreme measures that include such things as limiting travel across provincial borders, which is a whole other level of, of uh, development that we've never seen before uh, in, uh, in Canadian history. And you're right, at the municipal level, there are it's much harder to track this, but at the municipal level, there are a number of cities that have introduced their own emergency provisions. Uh, many uh, provinces under their provincial emergencies law uh, include the competency for cities to declare their own local or municipal uh, emergencies. It's not clear to me necessarily how much is added by municipalizing, if you will, of these emergencies, but there are some measures in place in some municipalities. At the federal level, We've seen now at least three orders under the Aeronautics Act. Recall, we talked last day. We weren't sure how the government was steering flights 
uh, in inbound flights, uh, international flights to a handful of airports. Those interim orders have been issued by the Minister of Transport under the Aeronautics Act. As we speculated, there have now been three of those. They expire and then they're renewed. Uh, we also have uh, provisions under the Quarantine Act that continue to ratchet, inc including provisions under the Quarantine Act that were used to limit entry into Canada from countries other than the U.S. and also, this is what people were talking about in terms of closing the border, to limit entry into Canada from the United States. Now, I want to emphasize it's a limitation. People have been talking about closing the border. The border is not, in fact, closed. Effectively, what these Quarantine Act orders are doing is limiting, uh, people have been using the term non-essential, but I'll, I'll call it discretionary travel, that is travel by tourists, uh, recreational travel, all that is shut down now from the United States. But business travel, and uh, essential travel of foodstuffs and the like, uh, there's no provision in these Quarantine Act orders that would limit that. Bit different from, uh, for the order in relation to entry from other countries. Uh, entry from other countries is, is more firmly uh, closed. So that's pretty much where we stand at present. We are continuing to try to track these orders on our webpage, intrepidpodcast.com. It's a bit of a tricky undertaking because they're deposited in various places over websites uh, that the provinces run and the feds run, and there's no single depository, and there's a lag. They announce these measures, then it takes days sometimes before you can actually find the order, which is another process issue that I find really bothersome. These are pretty extreme measures. You think the least they could do is post the orders as soon as they're issued. Let me stop there, Stephanie. No, it was a good rant. I enjoyed it. Um, so no, I, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, if you are taking these measures at the very least, I mean, look, let's be fair. A lot of these places are running on skeletal staff right now. So maybe it, it's a little bit hard, but yeah, it, it should be up. But uh, yeah, as of, um, you know, we're recording this on March 25th. As of this morning, um, the, the Quarantine Act now applies to people who have been, uh, who have returned. And um, it's pretty serious fines. I was, you know, they were reporting that it's, it's up to a million dollars you can be charged with for violating as well as um up to three years in prison now i think throwing people in prison is probably not the best idea right now but uh it, it is pretty some some stiff penalties that hopefully will encourage people to um uh, follow that the 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 rules that have been set in place so stephanie you've mentioned the new quarantine order that was announced today on wednesday March 25th. I haven't seen the order. I, I, my assumption is it's going to be an order in council, as has been the practice for quarantine orders to this point under Section 58 of the Quarantine Act. The text will matter. It'd be interesting to see what it says. So just to be clear that, Stephanie, the reference to $1 million or imprisonment for up to three years is for an intentional crime. So you find that in Section 67 of the Quarantine Act for those following along. And it's about a person causing a risk of imminent death or serious bodily harm to another person while acting willfully or recklessly in contravening the act or the regulations. Uh, that's the provision that's probably the sternest in the Quarantine Act, but there are others. So, for example, in terms of contraventions of an order under Section 58, and, and these quarantine orders are all being issued under Section 58, which gives the governor and council, that is the cabinet, the capacity to issue sort of a standing, broad-based Quarantine Act order. If you violate that, you can be liable for a fine of not more than $750,000 or imprisonment for a term of not more than six months. And so that's the provision that's most likely to apply to someone who uh, ignores essentially the new quarantine order that obliges uh, people to self-isolate upon returning from another country, including the United States. And that's found in Section 71. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that the government would proceed against a person for uh, episodic or incidental violation. Just right. To, to I just... Try 
I was just going to say, I think one of the things that they're concerned with in the United States is there's been chatter on white nationalist forums about deliberately spreading COVID in order to cause chaos. So I think that might be the terrorism element. Um, but as, as to whether or not it would be applied generally, is it remains to be seen. So that's kind of an update on our emergencies legislation, uh, which is, you know, that we talked about last week and, and may be in fact ongoing. And um, like I said, thank you for, for doing that great job of uh, keeping all that legislation uh, on, on, on our website, intrepidpodcast.com. So if you're interested, you can go take a look. Um, but one of the other things I wanted to shift to keeping more in line with our uh, Her Majesty and Right of Pod is the role of parliament in a pandemic. And we now have, um, uh, since, since we last spoke, a, a new bill, now law, called an act respecting certain measures in response to COVID-19. Now, um, this caused a huge furor yesterday on social media. And um, perhaps Phil could give us a, an overview of, of what happened in, in his view, because I think uh, you've been somewhat critical of this in your kind of academic way. Right. So let's start by taking a step back and noting that uh, prior to that, this latest piece of legislation, there was an adjustment made earlier that extended the ability of the finance minister to request special warrants uh, from the governor general. Uh, now, the special warrants provisions that were put out allowed for use of, ta of funds that are already there for an extended period of time, right? So that's a slightly different issue, and it was actually very time-bound uh, in terms of when they could do this. But it's important to note that this isn't the first kind of special provision that we put in place around here. But the, the controversy uh, that came to the fore was apparently the, all the parties had kind of gotten together and uh, negotiated what they expected this emergency legislation to look like, and in particular, to be able to pass the emergency funding relative to the relief, uh, financial relief that the government was proposing. And it seemed that at the final hour, uh, the Liberal government decided to introduce a provision within this legislation apart that would have allowed it to uh, give the finance minister discretion to raise or alter taxes up until uh, December 2021 without Parliament being consulted. Now, you can imagine this was a fairly significant move. Um, going back to some of our earlier discussions in Her Majesty and Right Pod, uh, you'll recall that Parliament's uh, original purpose was to uh, provide the right of the Crown to impose and levy taxes. So this idea that uh, the executive would be able to raise taxes or adjust taxation without uh, explicit parliamentary approval was not only controversial uh, in terms of how the opposition parties felt they were being consulted, but it really strikes at the very heart of our system of government. So needless to say, this created a bit of a fear, uh, but it, it, it uh, ultimately was abandoned and the opposition parties in the government were able to decide on something more moderate. But I think it's a, it'd be interesting to, to leverage this to have a, a larger discussion about what is the proper role of the legislature in uh, a crisis like this. And this is actually a pretty unique situation because other crises that we've thought of uh, don't really require social distancing per se. So in a wartime situation, you can still have parliament meeting because there's no real need to keep people at a distance. But this is introducing some fairly interesting dynamics into this notion of uh, the legislature's role during an emergency 
because now we have an emergency where the cautious approach is to keep people apart. And as you mentioned, Stephanie, right at the, the outset, um, the Westminster system has always been known for kind of keeping people very close together uh, when they're uh, acting in, in their parliamentary function. So it's, uh, it's really raising questions about exactly how do you have parliament uh, playing its proper constitutional function at a time when you were, you're trying to keep people at a distance from one another, and you're also trying to preserve the executive's ability to act with dispatch. Right. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. And there's so much there I, I want to unpack. What happened? Did the system work? Are you suddenly uh, a new roundhead from your kind of uh, executive power throne? Um, and, and, you know, and how is Parliament actually going to work in all this? So let's maybe unpack those separately. Um, Craig, did you have any thoughts on, on what happened uh, over the last, say, 48 hours? So my initial response, Stephanie, and I've said this before, is that we have to find a way to continue operating as a parliamentary democracy. And if that means the parliament needs to go online like the rest of us, uh, we've made it work in academia, albeit unperfectly. Uh, so, so too parliament can make this work. I really am reluctant to see parliament adhere to ancient traditions about in-person deliberations at the expense of operating as a as a deliberative body and, and simply uh, leaving the field to the executive. I think that would be uh, disastrous uh, for the nature of our democracy. And, and so, you know, make it work, figure out how to make it work. Right, so what I'm taking from this from you guys is really there's two sets of issues here. The first one is this kind of practical matter of how do we actually make this uh, a Westminster system work in an era of, uh, you know, uh, physical distancing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then, of course, there's the second issue of oversight. So how do you actually do oversight in, in a crisis? So let's let's take the first one first, the, the practical matters. Um, basically, we've seen some changes to operations. Um, you know, there's been some uh, discussion of whether or not uh, MPs can meet online. Um, I, I have some kind of dreams that, you know, to solve the heckling problem, we can just use the mute function on Zoom. I think it would be great. Um, but the, I think what we have also seen now is there's a standing order that select committees can operate remotely. So it seems that at least the select committees may already be headed in this way. So uh, do you guys have any thoughts on this uh, with regards at least to parliamentary procedure? Are there um, steps that need to be taken in order to have an online parliament? Well, uh, th there is a debate out there that um, even in the Constitution Act 1867, you would need an amendment given the nature of how uh, the Speaker recognizes members uh, as being present. So, you know, is, is this a case where, you know, we can have some creative interpretation of the rules? Um, alternatively, you might simply need uh, an adjustment to the standing orders. Um, but there again, the question is, do you really need to, to jump through all these hoops in order to arrive at a, a more practical solution? My two cents at this stage is, look, I'm not even convinced that um, it, it wouldn't be possible to have the kind of sittings that we had yesterday, where you, everybody's keeping a fairly uh, good distance from one another. And if we ultimately get to the point where I think we all think we need to get, namely widespread testing, uh, this would become more practical. But like Craig, I mean, the, the main issue for me at this stage is I would rather have a parliament that is operating um, online in some way than have no parliament at all. And I'm, I'm still of the view that until we get there, until we find the solution, the parliament should be sitting throughout this. I, I, I'm really uncomfortable with this idea that it, uh, that it convened uh, only to pass this legislation and then we'll, we'll break apart again. 
uh, I think what uh, what yesterday demonstrated is that you really need to have a continuous uh, parliamentary involvement in all this. Um, and the word oversight is interesting here because we don't typically uh, use that, that term when discussing how parliament holds governments to account in the Westminster system. We usually talk about scrutiny because it's something a parliament does after the fact. But this is really an instance of actual need for oversight. You need parliament and parliamentarians tracking everything that the executive is doing in order to ensure that it's being done uh, carefully, deliberately. Um, as Craig mentioned, you know, these the ministers and public servants right now are under an increasing amount of pressure. And so it's not to say that they're acting maliciously. It's simply to say that sometimes they may be acting without realizing the second and third order consequences of what they're proposing. And all you really just want an extra set of eyes coming in there uh, from a separate branch of the state saying, okay, yes, this looks good, being able to communicate it properly, being able to demonstrate that the other parties are on board in a minority parliament situation, um, and providing, again, that robust oversight and demonstrating as well, and this gets back to the digital question, that our system can adapt. Because if we can't have a parliament that can adapt to this type of scenario, then it's really telling us that we're, we're involved in institutional ossification that is not helping us at all. Um, just on that note, I mean, you, I saw that you tweeted out, um, New Zealand has actually taken some interesting steps in, in, in this kind of like, again, I don't know if we want to call it oversight or scrutiny, but we have to be really careful because... Craig has very strict views on what he considers oversight, uh, but the, and the way it's actually used in our system is is actually important for the purposes of this podcast. But um, New Zealand uh, apparently has created a committee that is being chaired by the opposition for the sole purpose of scrutinizing the government during uh, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. Yeah, and I think. This, this almost speaks to getting back to the Emergencies Act. So one of the disadvantages of not invoking the provisions of the act is that you don't have that continuous parliamentary presence and equally important, the parliamentary review committee that's provided for in the act. So even if we don't ever get to the Emergencies Act and invoking it, maybe we can take some inspiration from it and set up something like that parliamentary review committee that's provided for in the act specifically to deal with the, the overall response to COVID. And, you can, and as New Zealand is doing, it's being chaired by the opposition. So you could almost have something like uh, a, the, a COVID version of the Public Accounts Committee uh, for the government's response. And it should be something that is also able to communicate to the public, and it should be a body that is able to include all the views of uh, the, the other parties. Um, and to my mind, getting back to another kind of idea that's been floated there, that's a preferable solution than trying to have a unity government where every party is sitting in cabinet, precisely because as we saw yesterday, you, you do need an opposition function there to be able to call out cabinet when it makes decisions, perhaps in haste, that are, are not as well thought out as they could be. Yeah, I, I would just add that uh, under the Emergencies Act, it's actually it's actually uh, worse than the sort of ad hoc arrangement that, that Phil's talking about in the sense that the Parliamentary Review Committee, which can deliberate on, say, a, an order or measure that's issued under a public welfare emergency, they're all obliged to take an oath of secrecy. And, and Section 62 says every meeting of the Parliamentary Review Committee uh, held to consider an order regulation referred to it shall be held in private. 
So not the most transparent system, keeping in mind that the Emergencies Act was mostly designed for political emergencies, right? A war emergency or the like. Uh, so it's designed really to keep uh, information close to the chest. That's not what we need, I think, in terms of uh, this uh, emergency. This emergency is all about information. Yeah, fully agree. I mean, uh, I, as with you, that committee is made to be able to deal not only with public welfare emergencies um, and international emergencies, but as importantly, war emergencies, right? So you needed a type of committee structure that could deal with all of those. And to be quite honest, it's almost uh, on this point, maybe demonstrating that the Emergencies Act um, may not be the best uh, type of tool for public welfare emergencies that mirror the provincial uh, authorities as much um, as it may be for war, war emergencies and others. So perhaps coming out of this, we'll have to come up with a better legislative structure to deal with emergencies uh, more of this nature than what the Emergencies Act provides and trying to deal with all emergencies in a similar fashion when it comes to parliamentary involvement. Okay, so we really kind of covered those two issues. So the practical matters of, of whether or not uh, Parliament can actually meet and can we adapt to that? And then the second question of, of oversight and scrutiny and kind of the necessity of that during uh, even the most serious emergencies. So so that's that's good. We're, we're doing well here. I guess the final two ideas I want to talk about are things that we're seeing floated uh, either in the media or in social media. And Phil, you've already touched on the first, and that is the idea of a unity government. Um, the idea, well, first of all, like what is a unity government and do we have any experiences of this in Canada? So, so we do have an experience of it during the First World War. Um, and the idea of it was that it was required because you were about to impose something very controversial, in particular impose something very controversial on French Canadians, uh, namely conscription. So you required um, national unity of effectively, to be frank, uh, Anglophones from various parties to come together and to ha have a, a, a united front on this issue of conscription. So to be honest, as a French Canadian, eh, already I'm a little biased against uh, unity governments, I suppose. But the wouldn't that be the, the ultimate form of executive power, though? Uh, no, I wouldn't put it that way because you know an executive works best when it's when it's not not just unified name but unified in philosophy, right? Uh, when you're kind of know what you want to do and uh, and you're in agreement about the general lines that you're trying to take. What we saw yesterday to me demonstrates exactly the kind of thing that would be happening behind closed doors that we should be privy to as a public, right? So I'm much more comfortable, as I kind of mentioned when it came to, to the overall issue here, a strong executive in a democracy requires a strong legislature to legitimize its actions. Uh, so if you believe that you should have an executive that's, that's strong and can act with dispatch and can act quickly, then you should also be in favor of uh, a legislature that can uh, play its, its scrutiny function with great vigor as well. The two are actually complementary. They're not, uh, they're not in conflict. So if you want to have an executive that's legitimate, you should have um, a legislature that's strong, right? And what we saw yesterday was a perfect example of that, where if you simply have an executive acting with full dis or attempting to act with discretion without that proper check, its actions can be called into question and be seen as, as under, below the bar of what's acceptable. Uh, so if you actually want an executive that's able to act quickly, that's able to act with discretion, you should want a legislature that is there watching 
almost everything it does. Wow, pandemic Phil is weird. That's what I'm taking from this. That doesn't mean you have to legislate everything the government does. The key here, the key here is is uh, scrutiny. It is not legislating everything. Uh, but uh, the, the idea is the presence of the scrutiny itself is vital. So a unity government would effectively be where you bring in, say, the leaders of the opposition, make them members of the Queen's Council or whatever, and then help have them, you know, brief them um, and then uh, make them a part of the government per se so that decisions can be made urgently. But, you know, this entire discussion we've had so far has been about actually, no, we're going to operate in an emergency situation better because of parliamentary scrutiny and oversight. Well, I think that the argument that's out there is is even above that, right? So there's, you could, you could right now brief members of the opposition that are privy councillors about what the government is doing, but then you lose transparency. I mean, if, if the government has an idea, it should be able, as Craig said, given the nature of this crisis, to be public and transparent about it. Um, and I think we should demand that right now. So there, I, I have difficulty understanding what it is that, that they would need to brief the members of the opposition um, behind closed doors that can't be done on the floor of the commons or perhaps via Zoom or whatever. Um, the, the unity government issue goes over and above that and actually includes members of the opposition as ministers subject to cabinet solidarity. And that's where you're kind of taking this to another level, right? And they're also subject not only to cabinet solidarity, but also cabinet confidence when it comes to all these discussions. So effectively, what you end up with is uh, an executive composed of all parties making decisions that are far subject to far less opposition and questioning than if you maintain a single party government or perhaps a coalition with at least one party acting as the official opposition. Um, the argument in favor of it is that these are very exceptional times and everybody has to be on the same page. We all have to, you know, meet this crisis together. Therefore, you know, it, it, the best thing we could do if we're asking Canadians to either stay in their homes or accept massive amounts of spending or draconian measures to contain this, we all should be speaking uh, on this, from the same song sheet or that analogy doesn't work, but all singing from the same song sheet as opposed to, you know, squabbling um, as we typically do in politics. But I think what yesterday demonstrated is that there are still vital, essential constitutional issues and constitutional roles that need to be maintained, even in spite of uh, the call for unity. You can be unified on the general direction that your state is taking to respond to this crisis without letting go of a responsible, critical, questioning opposition role within the parliament. Stephanie, the only thing I I would just add on on unity governments, unity governments may make sense in a war where you're trying to you're just trying to show resolve to an enemy. I'm not sure that a virus is going to be much impressed by a, a solid phalanx uh, of a unity, a unity government. Uh, it, to the extent that a unity government provides for enhanced coordination, uh, well, I, again, it's not enhanced coordination at an administrative level. It's enhanced coordination at a politicking level. And I'm not, I, I'm not really persuaded that we're ta- we should be talking about unity government. Where I think we need to talk about more unity in a small U sense is provincial federal, right? Because these measures are gonna require a great degree of coordination across the Federation to ensure that uh, an outbreak in a, one jurisdiction doesn't then 
ultimately culminate in an outbreak in other jurisdictions, there's going to have to be a substantial amount of uh, inter-jurisdictional uh, coordination. And we don't necessarily have a perfect instrument for that. And to the extent that coordination depends on bilateral relationships between different departments at a federal versus provincial level, as opposed to a more centralized coordination, I'm not sure I'm not sure how well that's going to work, right? And so how well is CBSA cooperating with provincial health officials, for example? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Uh, but that seems to be where the most fruitful gains could be made uh, in, in terms of uh, staving off uh, a worse effect from this pandemic. No, I think, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, you know, I was a little cheese off yesterday because it felt like some of the points that were being raised were, you know, people describe them as procedural as opposed to substantive and, um, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about uh, COVID-19 as much as the next person. And I just kind of felt like, um, you know, it, it's interesting because Phil, you describe on your blog uh, or on, on, your, on your Twitter, the difference between say thoughtful, engaged criticism, which I think we're all advocating for here, but we tend to have what you call the meathead reflex uh, sometimes in our, in our politics. And it's really, it's really not time for that. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to, to tell the difference uh, between the two. So it seems to me that the people who I follow on these issues seem to be satisfied that the system worked yesterday. Uh, a unified government is probably not the way to go forward. I guess the last thing I wanted to, to talk about uh, was the idea, um, and again, I've seen Phil, you talking about this, and, and we have talked about this too, uh, actually I think even on our last podcast, which is military aid to the civilian power. Are we there and is this a good idea? So I guess I'll start off. Um, there's a number of points to make. The, the first one is military aid of the civil power um, is something done in, at the behest of the province. And then the chief of the defense staff determines the response. And increasingly over time, the federal parliament has introduced provisions within the, the National Defense Act that give uh, the federal uh, minister uh, a little bit more awareness of, of how that's being put together because there's, there's issues around how much this costs and what's a proper response in light of the CAF's other uh, requirements. So I don't think we have anything that would re reach to that level unless, you know, people start an armed insurrection in response to this, uh, to this virus. Uh, I don't think we're there. So let's kind of take that one off the table. So the other two provisions that uh, we've discussed before are those found in uh, 273.6 of the National Defense Act, uh, where the, the Canadian Armed Forces can be uh, requested to, to undertake public service. And I think that's really the one that we're gonna be talking about more in the coming months. The other one is military assistance to law enforcement. So that again, is not something that's provided for by the Emergencies Act, but it's something that's already available uh, to the government under the National Defense Act. Now, how could how might that look? Um, I, I suppose in some strange scenario, you may end up having the Canadian Armed Forces patrolling and helping law enforcement in, in, in some respects here, but I don't think that's where we're headed. Uh, far more likely is what we're already seeing in the UK, which is that um, once supply chains get really tight and people doing deliveries and, and whatnot are stretched to the max. You can have the the armed forces uh, helping with the delivery of essential supplies. Um, so again, we've seen that in UK already. I wouldn't be uh, surprised if we end up seeing that in Canada. Uh, and similarly, the, the military can be quite good at setting up kind of makeshift shelters and hospitals and things of that nature. All that said, as a number of military commanders have kind of noted, uh, particularly the retired ones, 
throughout all this, D&D CAF's main focus uh, is where it usually is, namely expeditionary operations and expedition or external threats. So they want to maintain an underlying capability to do everything else that they usually do. Uh, so that's their primary concern. Uh, the second one would be, okay, what other natural disasters, forest fires, flooding might happen in Canada while they're trying to assist with this? So they have to maintain contingency forces to deal with that. But you may end up in a situation, and I, I'd be interested to hear Craig's thoughts on this, but let's suppose, as a number of people have argued, that the only way to finally suppress this thing is to have mass testing of the population. Could you see members of the Canadian Armed Forces being uh, enlisted to uh, help with uh, the testing of the population at uh, satellite stations throughout large cities and in communities where they, there are reserve units or things like that? Is that a possible role? Is that something you could ask them to do? Uh, similarly, is there are there other other things that are being done by essential workers that the forces could contribute to? To doing so, um, either moving essential workers from one part of the country to another, if there is this coordinated response, moving supplies, um, providing some medical assistance on the margins. But uh, as, as has been noted uh, by certain retired commanders, the capacity of the Canadian forces to really do a lot here is actually not that that great. Yeah, so Stephanie, I would just jump in and say that because I saw uh, some of the same discussion, I think that Phil probably saw, there's, there's a fair amount of confusion about aid of the civil power versus the public service powers. And so leg legislatively and legally, they're very different. Aid of the civil power is the capacity for the provincial attorney general to effectively trigger uh, the Canadian forces assistance in terms of dealing with uh, riots or disturbances of the peace that are beyond the capacity of the civil authorities to suppress or deal with, right? So it's, it's, it was used in OCA. Uh, that's the kind of scenario where we're talking about aid of the civil power. More, more meaningfully for our conversation right now, what Phil mentioned, public service, 273.6 of the National Defense Act comes in two flavors. One of the flavors is a, a parallel provision in terms of law enforcement assistance that can be triggered at the federal level. Uh, and there are criteria as to when you can trigger it. But more generally, uh, under 273.6, the minister can authorize the Canadian forces to perform any duty involving public service undefined, right? And so that's the provision that's most important for our purposes because it's an open-ended opportunity for the Canadian forces to provide that public service. And that's the vessel through which the Canadian Armed Forces does that flood relief or that suppression of uh, forest fire activity or you know, helping in a snowstorm as we saw with Newfoundland a few weeks ago. Um, and it is a broadly textured uh, provision. And I think in answer to Phil's uh, query, I think that uh, it, it can include such things as providing assistance for testing, et cetera. I don't see any legal limitation on that. There's obviously gonna be an operational capacity limitation, but legally I don't, I don't see it. More generally on the law enforcement side, uh, my experience talking to people who work in this area, including Blaise Cathcart, who was the former judge advocate general, the military is never in a big rush to perform a civil policing role. And they don't train uh, soldiers for what well, they do. You know, there's some training, but generally speaking, the military is not geared towards civil policing in the way that police are. And so the idea of giving uh, some 18-year-olds uh, a mandate to go out and engage in civil policing is not necessarily a happy place for the military. So they're, they're, my, my sense from speaking to those who work in this area is there's, there's certainly no rush to do that. Um, and you know, when we had Blaze on the, path, on the podcast a few uh, months ago, he would talk about during the ice storm, for example, uh, how the military was, you know, the soldiers were always willing to be gung-ho, but they had to be rolled back to their 
to their actual uh, terms of engagement so that they weren't suddenly deputized to perform law enforcement purposes that they really were not authorized to engage in. So, you know, be careful what you wish for, right? It's not, uh, it, it's not, it, the military is not the vessel we use in our society for policing purposes. Public service is different, but policing, you know, we've got to be careful there. And just to echo that, I mean, there, there was some criticism out there on social media um, that this idea that if you invoke the Emergencies Act, suddenly you would have soldiers on the streets with guns, to quote that famous political ad, um, and that suddenly the military would be taking over from police in terms of law enforcement. And as Craig says, that's A, not at all what the Canadian Armed Forces want to be doing. That is so far from their preferred role um, that if they would avoid that at all costs, and they they would likely, you know, on as we teach our students when it comes to putting together briefing notes, it would kind of be the the easily discarded option uh, when providing military advice to government. Uh, similarly, it's not something civilians would uh, or the civil authority would want to necessarily embrace, right? The, you don't want to be the government that suddenly reacted to a pandemic by. Uh, having the, the the armed forces engaging in policing when policing can handle or the, the regular police forces can can do this role uh, right now. There's there's no pressing need for this. So I don't think we're going to be heading down there. The only thing I could potentially see is possibly if for whatever reason we really need to, to shut down provincial borders, which is already starting to happen, uh, maybe that would be beyond the capacity of certain law enforcement um, to handle if they're also being called into to police on a much wider scale or patrol on a much wider scale to make sure people stay in their homes as we've been seeing in, uh, in Spain and Italy. So I wouldn't rule it out entirely, but um, as was mentioned, it's not something the CAF wants to do. And I suspect that no cabinet is particularly keen on that idea. Um, but that being said, going back to this public service provision, I think one of the, the great utilities of uh, the military in, the, in Canada is they have unlimited liability um, when, it, when it comes to ser service provisions. If you need them to do something, they will do it. I just sincerely hope that uh, if soldiers are asked to take on highly risky activities, that they we have the medical supplies and protective gear ready to, uh, to enable them to do that with the greatest safety possible. Well, considering we're already struggling with that in, in our hospitals, it, it never remains to be seen. Well, guys, I want to thank you for uh, coming uh, on the podcast again. It's always nice to do a hymn rap. It uh, feels back like a throwback to normal times, except uh, now apparently Phil's all in favor of Parliament, and I'm just confused. You know, you're not going to live this down when things get back to normal, Phil, just, just to let you know that. I, know, I, know. I, I can assure you that, you know, my, my thoughts are entirely consistent. <laughs> sure, sure they are. Um, so anyways, I want to thank you guys. What we've learned today is that, you know, Parliament, important. Parliament still works. Oversight and scrutiny still important. Military, eh, who knows? All right. So thanks, guys. And uh, I'm sure we'll be back soon with another podcast as, uh, you know, this pandemic continues. Maybe something on a more traditional topic. But um, I think we, we want to keep abreast of what's happening. So uh, thank you for, for joining us. And don't forget to wash your hands. Thanks, everyone. Awesome.